before we jump into things, I have a small confession. You see, a couple weeks ago when Pastor John invited me to speak on this Sunday, I was so pumped and excited to speak about Palm Sunday that I said yes immediately. Now, the confession part of this is that last week, I remembered what I forgot about this week. And what I forgot about this week was that I had booked a dental appointment months ago. And to my dread, when I remembered, it wasn't an ordinary dental appointment, but rather a tooth extraction and a bone graft. Now, when I remembered that, it was like that might not have been a smart move for the same week that I preached. Now, the reason that I'm telling you this is so that if at any point in the service you catch me drooling or slurring, that's why. You don't have to be concerned. No one call for an ambulance. I'm going to be okay. The other reason that I want to tell you this is that not even having a tooth extraction could stop me from wanting to unpack scripture with you this morning. And more than that, it would not stop me from wanting to talk about Jesus. Because these are some of my favorite things about being on staff here at Circle. So I'm very grateful for that opportunity this morning. So before we jump into our Palm Sunday story, I'd like to just open again in a word of prayer. Because I want to invite Jesus into this space so that when you hear these words, it's Jesus speaking and not me. So let's just take a moment and pray again. Heavenly Father, I thank you for today. And I thank you for this opportunity to gather together as your church on Palm Sunday. Lord, I pray as we unpack these words and as we look at this entrance of you into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, I pray that you would speak to each one of us intimately, that as a result of the work that we do this morning, that we would come to know you more and love you more as a result. We pray this in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. So as I prepared to speak about Palm Sunday and this triumphant entrance of Jesus, I decided that I should read through this story a lot. And as I read this story over and over again, the same scene and specifically the same quote kept coming back in my head again and again. Now, this scene comes from one of my favorite movies of all time, The Lord of the Rings, The Return of the King. If you've seen the book, or if you've seen, if you've seen the book, if you've seen the movie or read the book, this quote might be very familiar to you. But if you haven't, I'm going to set the scene so that way you can get the context and the tension of this scene. So if you know the story of the Lord of the Rings, there is this millennia-long conflict between the forces of good and evil. And as time goes on, these, this conflict is building and building, and it's building for this one moment in time, it seems, this great battle, this battle of an age, the kind of battle that if the forces of good lose, it means genocide. If the forces lose, of good lose this battle, there is no future victory. So this is the tension that's in the air. 
This is the tension that's in the air that as Gandalf and his companion on the walls of a medieval city look out onto the plain where the battle is about to take place, the calm before the storm. And as they're standing there looking out on this scene, the stillness in the air breaks, and all of a sudden a beam of light shoots up into the horizon, and they're shocked. Well, Gandalf's friend is shocked, and he's looking at this, and he's saying, what does this mean? What's happening? What is this light? What does it mean? And with this scene in front of him, Gandalf says these words. The board is set. The pieces are moving. We come to it at last, the great battle of our time. This moment, this beacon of light, means that something is about to happen. The great battle is about to begin. Each time I read the Palm Sunday story, this is the quote that kept popping up into my head. The board is set, the pieces are moving. And I found that as I read the story again and again, I began to imagine this scene playing out, the same scene playing out on Palm Sunday, just with a lot less wizards and hobbits. A scene where someone like Gandalf someone with a greater knowledge of all of the things that are about to happen, would be standing on the walls of the city, would be looking at Jesus, would notice the way he enters the city, and he would utter the words, the board is set, the pieces are moving. We come to it at last, the great battle of our time. Something significant is about to happen. Do you feel the tension? Do you feel the tension of that first Palm Sunday? Because this is the tension that should exist when we read the Palm Sunday story. Especially, and I think it's important to notice that because especially at this time of year, when we read the Palm Sunday story, it's very easy for us to miss the significance of it. Because often, when we read the Palm Sunday story at this time of year, we pass by it on our way to the cross on Good Friday and the empty tomb on Easter Sunday. But it's this moment, it's Palm Sunday, that is actually pivotal in the whole story. And it's the reason that the crowds go from cheering and shouting Jesus' entrance into the city to them wanting him to be killed. And if we don't give this moment enough attention, if we race past it on the way to Easter, we miss the significance about what Jesus is saying about himself. Palm Sunday is the moment that puts everything into motion, that puts into motion everything that's going to take place in the days ahead. Palm Sunday is absolutely the first move on the board. And it's ultimately the move that leads Jesus to the cross. So let's start there. Let's examine the board. Let's dive into this event and see what it says about Jesus. And as we look at this story, pay attention to how each piece moves because there is some significant 
symbolism at play here. And it's this story that makes some important claims about who Jesus is. So, if you have your Bible handy, or you have your Bible app at the ready, we are going to be reading from the Gospel according to Matthew. We're going to be starting at chapter 21, verses 1 to 11. Now, this is the book where Matthew captures a biography about Jesus' life. You can find this book in the New Testament, which is the second half of your Bible, and it is the very first book of the New Testament. Now, Matthew was a student of Jesus, or one of his disciples. So Matthew was there. He witnessed these events take place. So let's take a look at the passage. Let's look at this story and see how each piece moves. As they, Jesus and his disciples, approached Jerusalem, they came to Bethphage on the Mount of Olives. Jesus sent two of his disciples, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her colt by her. Untie them and bring them to me. If anyone says anything to you, say that the Lord needs them, and he will send them right away. This took place to fulfill what was spoken through the prophets. Say to daughter Zion, see, your king comes to you gentle and riding on a donkey, and on the colt, the foal of a donkey. The disciples went and did as Jesus had instructed. They brought the donkey and the colt and placed their cloaks on them for Jesus to sit. A very large crowd spread their cloaks on the road, while others cut branches from the trees and spread them on the road. The crowds that went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. When Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city asked, Who is this? And the crowd answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth of Galilee. Now, before we dive into this story any further, I want to provide one more image that'll help us navigate this story, essentially giving us a little bit of structure. So I've already borrowed the quote from The Lord of the Rings about boards and pieces. Rather than getting away from that, I actually want us to lean more into that. For me, when I hear this quote, I'm not sure about you, but it brings to mind a chessboard. When we approach this story, this Palm Sunday event, we can absolutely picture it like a chessboard. And like a good game of chess, the first moves can predict a lot about the moves that follow, and it can tell us a lot about the players who are playing. So just a quick show of hands, just so I know who I'm talking to you, but does anyone here play chess before? Has anyone played chess before? Couple? Okay. Awesome. Well, this summer, I got really into chess. And our youth pastor, John Ravishander, and I downloaded a chess app, and we played non-stop. Now, I say non-stop, I promise. We did work in between games. Yeah. <laughs> and at first, when we were playing, I would beat John really consistently. And I can say that because he's not here. 
But what I found is the more and more we played, the better and better John got. And all of a sudden, out of the blue, he started going on a huge winning streak. And so, being the competitive person I am, I started researching chess. I needed to tilt the scale back into my favor. And what I learned as I researched was that there is a whole strategy behind this game. I don't know if there's anyone here that's been part of a chess club or something, but you definitely know that. And what I found as I unpacked the strategy behind this game is that each move can have its own strategy, especially the first moves. So if you're really into chess like I was this summer, you would know that there is a whole strategy behind your opening moves. Like for example, if I start and I move my piece on the board and you counter in a certain way, for the most part, I can set up a whole strategy, whether on offense or defense, to counteract your moves. There are books and books full of different opening offensive and defensive strategies. There's a lot packed into this board game. And I know that you guys, as you're sitting here and you're listening to me, you're getting a very healthy dose of nerdy things. We started with Lord of the Rings. We're now talking about chess. So if you're now the one that's drooling, but still with me, I really thank you for that. We are going places. What I found this summer in my attempt to beat John on a nightly basis is that the greater understanding that I have of the game of chess, the more I will be able to recognize what the first moves mean and how I can move accordingly. So this first move by Jesus on Palm Sunday is packed with that same level of significance and sophistication. And I would actually argue a higher level of sophistication and strategy. And I think usually, like I said before, when we first come to this story, we often see it as just a piece of narrative. That it helps us in the story of Jesus bringing him from teaching and performing miracles in the countryside to Jesus in the big city where he is killed and on the third day raised to life. But actually, this Palm Sunday story, if we examine it closely, can tell us a lot about who Jesus is. And it can tell us what is about to happen. So what is this entrance, this triumphant entrance of Jesus, tell us about him? If we examine this board and the moves a bit closer, I believe that there are two huge declarations about who Jesus is. And these are the declarations, spoiler alert, that get him killed. So buckle up. Let's start with the most obvious move Jesus makes here. And you likely picked it up right away. In the manner in which Jesus enters Jerusalem on Palm Sunday, he is making a very provocative claim and declaration. And he's not doing this with his words at all. But through his actions, Jesus is declaring himself king. You could almost say that this is the Bible's return of the king moment. This action by Jesus is really provocative because if you know the story, you know that Herod is king. 
And more importantly in this story, you know that Caesar is king. So when Jesus enters Jerusalem in the manner in which he does, the fact that he is declaring himself king by his actions, there are a couple of kingdoms under threat here. So that's why it's provocative. And if we look at the entrance itself, it kind of feels kingly. Because again, if you know this story, you know that Jesus is a pretty popular figure at the time. And he has a huge following, a following to the point where he's feeding thousands and thousands of people. And Jesus enters Jerusalem, the most important city in their nation and in their religious system. And not only does he enter their most important city, but he enters in at the most important time of the year. And there is a ton of fanfare. And if we go a layer deeper, we know that Jesus is hitting a massive national nerve. Because if we know this story, we know that Jesus is riding into a situation where they have been eagerly waiting for a king. If you know the story of Israel at all, you would know that they are kind of a mess. And they have been leaderless and kingless for quite some time, since the time of David. They found themselves in seasons of occupation between Babylon and Assyria and now Rome. So the people have longed for a great king like David. And they've been waiting for a long time. So when Jesus rolls into town in the same matter that the prophets talked about centuries before this date, you better believe that people took the hint what Jesus was saying. You better believe that they thought in that moment, this is the promised king. But here's the thing with this story. Jesus ended up not being the kind of king that everyone was expecting. This is how we go from shouts of, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, to crucify him, crucify him, in only a matter of days. Everyone expected Jesus to be something else, to be the kind of king that they thought they needed. They're there, they're in this moment, they're in this event, but they miss it. They are so caught up in their own expectations of what a king should be that they miss it. Because if they had taken a moment to appreciate the manner in which Jesus enters the city, they would have gotten a glimpse into the kind of king that he is and a glimpse into the kind of city that he was planning to usher in, the kind of kingdom that was to be ushered in. Because look at the story. Jesus doesn't send an emissary ahead of him. He is not met at the, tr the gates with trumpets or heralds declaring, this is Jesus. If you read the story, you know that he is not meant by political dignitaries waiting to hand him the keys of the city. Jesus does not come into the city with a huge army behind him in a chariot or on a war horse. Jesus doesn't come into the city with worldly power. Instead, Jesus comes on the back of a donkey. And not only a donkey, 
but a borrowed donkey. Like, it's not even his donkey. He comes into the city with no wealth or resources. Jesus' kingdom is so different from the one everyone wanted. They wanted a king who would ride on that war horse, who would come with that huge army, and who would free them from their occupiers. A king who would come with force and bring them to their former glory. A king that would establish their kingdom wealth and prestige. But to everyone's frustration, and I mean everyone's frustration, if we look in a few days on Good Friday, even the disciples are confused. They are so confused that one of them betrays Jesus, one of them denies Jesus, and the rest of them all just run. Jesus is not the king they were expecting, and so they killed him for that. Jesus instead, Jesus instead of meeting their needs, he begins to shake up the religious systems. He reminds them of how they have drifted from their covenant with God. He goes around and he begins to flip on its head all of the things that are close to our hearts and our minds. He flips their ideas of money and what they think power looks like. Jesus starts reminding them that they were to be a light on a hill for all people of all walks of life. King Jesus goes around and he starts raising up the undesirable and rebuking the powerful. Jesus does not meet their needs. He is not the king they expected. Jesus, rather than playing along with their desires and their expectations, he begins to challenge them. And he begins to call them back to himself and to call them back into God's kingdom. This is an, maybe a, this is a, an important part of this story for us to pause. And Palm Sunday is an important season for us to pause and consider all of our expectations and desires that we have for God. Do we see this story, or better yet, do we see our story, and do we get excited about it until, well, until it doesn't meet our expectations, or it's not fulfilled in the way that we desired? And because of that, because we're so focused on the kind of king that we want, do we end up missing the movements and postures that God is inviting us into? You see, Jesus enters the city humbly on a borrowed donkey. But he then goes around and he starts confronting the systems. And he calls the Jewish people out and says, you've drifted from the board that God has set up for you to be a light. It's important to remember that the great battle of their time was not against the Romans, but rather the systems that oppressed. And people are so challenged by this. Their expectations are being challenged, and so they are offended and angry. And that ends up leading to a betrayal, a mock trial, and the eventual death of Jesus. Jesus doesn't meet their expectations. 
So the question for us is, is what expectations and desires do we have that are preventing Jesus from challenging us and that are ultimately keeping us from the life transformation he has for us? What do we do when Jesus challenges our ideas, our expectations, our wealth? If we read the story, we know that the religious leaders have him killed. What do we do? Do we just walk away? Do we just end up doing our own thing instead? I love that the Palm Sunday story ends with this question. Who is this? Who is this Jesus? Are we asking ourselves that question often? And when we ask that question, are we letting Jesus and what the scriptures have to say about him answer that? Or are we letting our own agendas, our own desires, and our own expectations of him answer that? Have you asked yourself that question in a way that the answer has radically changed or shaped your life? Or are you worried that it will? And so you just end up avoiding it. Because if you do, I promise you that it becomes a lot easier to lay those expectations, your agendas, and your desires at the feet of Jesus, just like a palm branch or a jacket. If the question, who is Jesus, is answered with, he is the king, and this is the hard part, we must be willing to welcome him into all areas of our life, not just the areas that fit our agendas or expectations of him. And if I can just have a quick aside here, if you're someone that's walked away from faith because of your expectations of Jesus and of the fact that they were not met, can I encourage you to continue to investigate who is Jesus? Can I encourage you to explore that question with no agendas or expectations and see what you discover about him? And I want you to know this morning that that is why the church exists. We are a community that loves to explore the question of who is Jesus together. So if you're someone that is just ready to explore faith and to examine that question, would you just reach out to us? Would you fill out a connection card? Would you come and speak to one of our pastors after the service? The main thing that I want to get across here is that the church and we exist to be in that space, to wrestle with that question. So if this is the most obvious move in the story, if the most obvious thing is that Jesus is declaring himself as king, let's now examine what the least obvious thing is. And I say least obvious, I mean that is more or less we don't necessarily pick that up right away. And I personally only picked this up recently. But I think this is actually one of the most significant things that this story is telling us. And I would argue that this is one of the most important parts of our faith. So lean in. I believe that the timing in which Jesus enters the city and when it takes place, this story, this Palm Sunday story, is not random. It's the furthest thing from it. The timeline of this event 
in relation to the Passover celebration is very significant. Now, if you have no idea what the Passover is, in short, it's the Jewish celebration that calls to mind that while in Egypt, God passed over and spared everyone who had the blood of the lamb painted on their doorframe. So this event became so important to Israel's history and their religious system that the people began the practice of sacrificing a lamb on the Passover. And this became a very important part of an elaborate sacrificial system. Now, we don't have nearly enough time this morning to unpack that. So I have just a QR code that'll go up here on the screen. And if you point your camera at that, it will take you to a Bible project video that explains um, the sacrificial system in way more depth. Obviously, don't watch it here. Take it home. Um, consider that your homework for the week. But simply put, in just a few thoughts here, the sacrificial system was put in place to deal with the fact that God is holy. And we, as humans, have a tendency to sin, to mess things up, to make poor choices, to hurt one another. And as a result of sin and the result of brokenness, we can't be in right relationship with God. Because remember, he's holy. So the sacrificial system was put in place so that we could be made right with God. This system addresses the fact that we sin and that the ultimate payment for sin was death. So that's why God put the system in place so that we, he could remedy it, so that we could be put back in right relationship with him. So a lamb would be sacrificed to pay that debt. And the lamb took your sin and paid that debt so that you could be made right with God. And again, there is no way that we're going to be able to cover a huge theological landscape of that, but that essentially is what the sacrificial was. It was... An animal took on your sin and paid your debt by its death so that you could be made right with, with God. And it's important for me to say this, and it's important for us to talk about this, because the, sacrover, sacro, the Passover lamb was a significant piece in this system. And we know that this system is elaborate when we read the Old Testament, and we know that it's really important. So 3,000 years before Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, this is the board that's set. This sacrificial system is in play. And as we see on Palm Sunday, the pieces begin to move. Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem predicted that in a few days, the great battle would be won. That the great battle of humankind and of sin would be won. And it's all in the perfect timing of Jesus. Because according to the instructions for the Passover sacrifice, the Passover lamb was to be selected and set apart on the 10th day of the month of the Jewish calendar. This would have been known as Lamb Selection Day. Guess which day Jesus decides to roll into Jerusalem. If anyone guessed Lamb Selection Day, 
you would absolutely be correct. The board is set and the pieces are moving. So what does this say about Jesus? What is he saying? What is he declaring in this moment? How is he answering their question, who is this? Jesus is declaring himself to be the Lamb of God. And this might not be obvious to us when we read it. Jesus is declaring himself to be the last sacrifice. Jesus is declaring himself to be the sacrifice to end all sacrifices. His move here, his move on Lamb Selection Day, is him telling us that he is going to take our place. That he is going to take on our sin. And that he is going to pay the debt that is owing. Jesus, by arriving in Jerusalem on the 10th day of the month, on Lamb Selection Day, playing out a standard set 3,000 years before, is telling each one of us and all those who are witnessing this event that he was the Passover lamb that was to be set apart to die so that we could be put into right relationship with God. He is the Passover lamb, the last Passover lamb. His blood is now on the doorposts of the universe. You might not have noticed this the first time that you read through this story, but this is huge. And I don't know about you, but maybe this is the declaration that you need to hear today. If you're here and you are feeling just the weight of life on your shoulders, if you are feeling the heavy burden of all of the bad things or poor choices that you've made in life, if you're listening to this and you feel just an incredible sense of guilt and shame, if you recall times where you've hurt the people around you, if you feel like you're in a season where you're distant from God, Jesus, the Lamb of God, is inviting you to cast that all on him. To place all of your pain and your hurt and sin and brokenness on him today. That is what he is doing when he rides in on Palm Sunday. He had all of this in mind as he rode through the city gates. He has declared himself king over everything. And he ultimately went to the cross on Good Friday all for that weight that has been placed on your shoulders to be placed on him. And he does this all because he is for you and he loves you. He loves you, he loves me, he loves us. And he loves this world so much that he is reconciling all things back to himself. That there will become a time where there is no more tears, no more sorrows, no more pain. And I don't think that they knew it at the time, but Jesus was answering all of their cries for help. All their cries for help when he shouted, when they shouted Hosanna, which literally means save us. Cries for help reserved for a king. 
Jesus was answering their cries without them even knowing it. The board was set, and Jesus was moving. They shouted, Lord, save us. And I don't know where you are in life or how things are going, but as we've had this opportunity to unpack this story, to examine the board in front of us that was set millennium in advance, I want to give you the chance this morning to move towards him. He's already moved towards you. This morning, the board is set. It is absolutely not a coincidence that you're here. Jesus is still and forever in the posture of saving us and inviting us to enter into a relationship with him. If you find yourself this morning in a place where you feel like you're just saying, Lord, save me, Jesus absolutely wants to do that. It might not be in the way that you expect at first, but I can promise you that it will be better than expected. And if you're here or you're watching online, we want to give you an opportunity in this moment, this morning, that if as you've heard this and as we've examined the question of who is this, who is Jesus, that you want to say yes to Jesus, we want to create space for that. If you're at a place in your life or when you start asking the question of who is Jesus, that you come to a place where you say, he's real. He is the son of God. He's my king. And you'd like to begin a relationship with him? I want to invite you to do that this morning. I want you to take that move this morning. So in order to make that as non-intimidating as possible, I just want to invite everyone just to close your eyes and bow your heads. Just to make this move of yours as private and as personal as possible. And in a moment, we're just going to pray for anyone who is wanting to say yes to Jesus, who's wanting to say yes to King Jesus, who's wanting to say yes to the Lamb of God. In a moment, would you just raise your hand to let me know that you're making that decision? Only just so I can know who I'm praying with. And if you're online, you can just put that in the chat. But friends, the board was set. And as Jesus entered into the city, he said, I am king. And I'm going to make all things right. So this morning, if you are saying yes to Jesus, would you just raise your hand? you're like, I would like to begin a relationship with Jesus, would you just raise your hand and say yes? Okay. Thanks. All right, we're going to pray and just invite Jesus into our lives. Heavenly Father, we thank you for Palm Sunday. We thank you that on this day, you declared yourself as king that you said that I am the Lamb of God, and I have come to set all things right. And so, Lord, today, upon hearing those declarations, we say yes to you. We say yes to being 
in your family and in relationship with you. So Lord, would you pour your spirit out on us? Would you fill us with your incredible love? And would we know that you're king? And would we know your love in a deep way? So Lord, we say yes to you. We say yes to following you. And we give you our life. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.